right? Paul has gone back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. He just gets warned in every city he passes through by people who say, I have a word from God for you, Paul, that he's going to be in trouble. So he gets back to, to Jerusalem, and uh, he's going into the temple daily, and on his way out, on one particular day, the mob stirred up by a false report they've heard about him, uh, who are about to tear him limb from limb, when he's rescued by the Romans. The Romans realize he's a, he's a Roman citizen and that uh, they can't beat him or scourge him or whatever, but they decide to find out what's going on. So the next day they call the whole Jewish Sanhedrin, a kind of religious council that runs the country uh, together. And uh, they meet with Paul and that meeting ends, as we saw last week, in some uh, confusion as well because the two parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, start shouting at one another. And so Paul's back in prison and uh, the commander's thinking, now, what do we do from here? So this is where the story starts. 23, uh, verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than four men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, Petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the partner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he had something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting to create information about him. But don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to us. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them to get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. That's not quite accurate, is it? He was going to beat him and scourge him and put him in chains. But anyway, he rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. <laughs> I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their son. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man... I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to be present to you, uh, to present to you uh, their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. 
Well, that's our passage, and I've called this morning's surprises because I think there are three surprises going on in this passage. And surprising things happen to us uh, in life as well, don't they? I never expected that all the way down to uh, Painton this morning, I'd be looking nervously at the needle to see how much fuel I had left in the tank. That's come up with... Clear sky, hasn't it? All kinds of things like that happen all the time. It's, it's not carbon dioxide, it's petrol, and it's not... Well, anyway. And uh, surprises happen all over the place. And uh, living life with God in charge doesn't mean you necessarily get an easy lead. Because you will still be surprised again and again. And so I want to talk about the three surprises which I think uh, Paul has in this passage this morning. The first thing, obviously, is... There's an unexpected threat. He finds out that people are plotting to kill him within the next 24 hours. Second, there's an unexpected answer. His nephew turns up and says, Paul, I found out what's going on. And we don't know what Paul's relationship with his family was, but it was pretty arm's length. We don't think that they became Christians, and so probably uh, he didn't see very much of his nephew. But suddenly he turns up out of the blue with an answer to the situation. But something still needed to happen. And when Paul is, is uh, taken away, when Claudius Lysias reacts in the situation, you have an unexpected blessing as well. Because when God provides an answer, he gives you more than you're expecting to have. And we'll see, I think, all three things in the passage here this morning. The first thing is the unexpected threat. I'm sorry, some of the fonts have changed in transmission, which is something I'm very careful about, but it doesn't seem to work this time on some slides, so you'll see little bits like that appearing. But anyhow, let's start. An unexpected threat. The first thing is it came out of the, I should say blue, but it doesn't at the moment. It will in a moment. It came right out of a clear blue eye. Nobody knew that this was going to happen. Paul had a meeting with the Sanhedrin. Uh, nobody knew what would happen next. Probably there would be another meeting with the Sanhedrin, and that's what the plotters were counting on, wasn't it? Oh, you ask to see Paul again. That will be perfectly plausible. And when he's on the way there, we'll corner him and knife him. Well, that kind of assassination happened quite a bit in Jerusalem in those days. We know from the, the Jewish historian Josephus that the, Rus- the, the, Romans, the, Russians, the Romans were trying very, very hard to stay in control of the country, but it wasn't always that easy. There were lots of different groups and factions, and there were people who were desperate to see their country freed of the Romans, and so people who were thought to be collaborators or, or not quite on message were killed off all the time. It would have been easy for that to happen. It came out of the blue. It was discovered by, and you can probably work out that where where there is accident. And sometimes that's the case with with unexpected threats as well. When something happens to us, we'll look back on it after and think, it could have gone so much more wrong. If Paul's nephew had not known what was going on, that would have been the end of Paul, and the book of Acts would have ended somewhere in the middle of chapter 23. But... It didn't happen that way. And sometimes you look at the situation, you think, if God had not provided the answer, I'd have been absolutely sunk. Things could have been so much worse. And you look back in a cold sweat at what God has actually brought you through. And the third thing about the threat, it seems to me, was third thing, it might not have been taken seriously. Even when Paul's nephew came and reported what was going on, Claudius Lysias might have thought, nah, we don't need to do anything about this. I mean, if he's killed off, it's just another Jew out of the way. Solves a problem for me. I won't believe his report. Or he might have done very little about it, in which case Paul uh, could easily uh, have been overpowered and killed. As it was, he put all of the resources of the Roman army at Paul's disposal. 
must have been out. Half of the soldiers who were regularly stationed in Jerusalem who went with Paul up to Caesarea. That is pretty incredible, really, when you think about it. He really reacted strongly and did something uh, about it. There may be all sorts of reasons for that, and we'll have a look at that perhaps in a moment. But the question you've got to ask is, why does God allow these things to happen? Because we can all identify with Paul's situation, can't we? Life is going along fine, and then suddenly there's this enormous threat to our lives in some kind of a way. And uh, if God doesn't provide the answer, we're absolutely stuffed. Now, why does God put us through those things? Especially just after Paul has had his big encounter with Jesus. Do you remember, in the two verses immediately before our reading this morning, it says that the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. You have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, Paul goes into the threat then, knowing that he's prepared for it, knowing that Jesus has guaranteed in person that he will get to Rome, but at the same time, why does God send this kind of thing along? And when I was thinking about this, preparing for this this, this this week, it reminded me of one of the stories we used in the camp here this summer. Because we're looking at different Bible characters each day. And one day we looked at this guy, Jehoshaphat, a king in the Old Testament, whom you see here uh, at the end of what was supposed to be a battle. Actually, he didn't even have to fight. He just turned up and he found that uh, the enemy were all dead. And so you see here is all of the treasure and stuff being taken back to Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat is a really interesting story, Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you've never read it, because I think it tells us a little bit about why God does this to his people. He sometimes does this to make sure that we are depending completely on him and not on ourselves. Jehoshaphat was told that a great army was about to invade his country. It was the Moabites, his big ancestral enemies, plus a couple of other kingdoms round about. And the biggest army he had ever seen was coming up from the south, through the, the oasis at En Gedi, which is only, what, 30 miles from Jerusalem. And then he heard that they were camping in the wilderness of, of Jeruel, which is, we reckon, we're not exactly sure where it is, but that's something like 10 to 15 kilometers away from Jerusalem. He was very, very close indeed. And so Jehoshaphat called all the people together and said, we've got to pray. We don't know what to do here, but uh, we, 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 we've got to ask God for his help. And so he prays this desperate prayer saying, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Because we realized it was a problem that was so big, there was no way he could find the answer by himself. And all of the people prayed with him. And then one Levite stood up. And he's named in uh, Second Chronicles 20 as so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, which means he wasn't that important a character. <laughs> you know, they had to drill down to find exactly what family he came from because nobody knew him. But he stood up and he said, God's given me a message. And Jehoshaphat said, great. What are we going to do? How are we going to fight them? How can we do this? Can we, can we get them by the curry? Has God got superior weapons that we don't know about yet, that we can take in, weapons of mass Moabite destruction or something like that? Can we go in and do something? And uh, the Levite said, well, you're not going to like this, but uh, God has got some weapons for you to use. Um, and Joshua said, hey, come on, tell me, tell me. He said, well, uh, guitars, tambourines, harps. God wants you to go out there in front of that big army and have a praise party. And to do him credit, Jehoshaphat bowed down to the ground and said, God has spoken. And uh, 
the actual words that the Levites used in what he said was this, the battle is not yours, but God's. And so all the people started to worship God, it says, because they followed Jehoshaphat's lead. If he trusts God, that's good enough for us. But they still must have felt pretty doubtful about it. And I reckon the next morning, when they went out to meet the Moabite army with their guitars and their tambourines and stuff, it must have been one of the funniest moments in the Old Testament because they were singing at the top of their voices and their knees were knocking in time with the music. Praise the Lord, we're going to get slaughtered. He is great and eternal, but we're not. We're going to get killed by lunchtime. Yeah. And it says that when they went to the top of the, the, the brow of the hill overlooking the valley, they looked over the top and they could not believe their eyes because in that vast army, a dispute had broken out and they'd all started killing one another. And in the end, there were only two of them what left. And one of them just plunged his dagger into the other one as fear went through his head. So they were all dead. And God has solved the problem in one. And sometimes God does that. And I think he showed Jehoshaphat through that, that uh, uh, incident, the battle is not yours, it's God's. And you can just relax in the midst of the storm because the one who walks on the water is coming across the waves towards you and he's going to sort it out. That's one reason. I think another reason that God does this kind of thing, oh, this is, this is the end of the Jehoshaphat story, when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. When God does something, he does it properly. But he does it to underline just how we need to keep on depending on him. He's got the power, we haven't. This is an arm bone, which uh, I remember seeing once when I was about nine or ten years old. It's kept today in the Memorial Museum for David Livingstone's Lantyre in Scotland. It's an old cotton mill, which is where David uh, Livingstone, the great explorer and missionary, grew up. And from his earliest years, he wanted to go to serve God in Africa. And even while he was a, a boy, just moving around the, 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 uh, the, the looms in, in the, the, the spinning uh, mill, he was uh, putting new reels of cotton on the, 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 the looms. And at the same time, he had a Greek grammar and a Hebrew grammar propped up on them so that he could, as he ran about, just learn a few more Greek and Hebrew words. And he dedicated himself to going to serve God in Africa. He got the qualifications. He went off to Africa. And uh, he found it more, much harder work than he expected. Because the Africans didn't really trust him. And he was working in a place with a tribe that didn't really want to know him too much. And one day, there was a lion that was, was, was marauding around that area. And it attacked one of the village women. And as soon as he heard the shouts, Livingston picked up his rifle and ran down the river with his gun uh, to, to try to deal with this lion. And he got the lion, he killed it, but the lion managed to maul him uh, as a result of, of, of his efforts. And there's the statue standing outside the Memorial Museum nowadays that shows just exactly what happened. And his arm, well, he was the only doctor within uh, 200 miles, <laughs> and so he had to set this, the, 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 the splint himself. And it's not easy doing it with one arm when your, your other arm is the thing you're operating on. And so it was never right again. It was crooked for the rest of his life. It was completely useless, that arm. And uh, he spent about six months uh, just, just suffering, because no anaesthetic or anything like that. And he got malaria as a result, and he went through months and months of agony. No quinine with insight or anything like that. And he must have wondered, God, why are you putting me through this? What is what's going on here? But when he finally emerged into health again, he found the 
attitude of the Africans had changed enormously because they realized that this white man hadn't come to rip them off or exploit them. He cared for them. He loved them in a way that they'd never been loved before. And as a result, David Livingston got a, 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 an admiration and a, a love back from the Africans, which went on for the whole of his life, when eventually he died a thousand miles away from the coast, a thousand miles away from the nearest white face. Some of his African uh, colleagues carried his body a thousand miles to the coast so he could go home. That's how much they cared for him. They walked a thousand miles carrying his body because he mattered that much to them. And it was all because of the injury to his arm. <laughs> and sometimes I think God puts us through those kinds of experiences because he wants to show us that only by making us dependent on him, only by putting us through experiences that seem to weaken us, can we be the strong people he wants us to be. And so I think all of this was going on in the unexpected threat that came and in the unexpected threats that come to us. I'm pressing the wrong button, am I? No, I'm not. It's just not doing anything anymore. Come on, thing. You can do that's better. The unexpected answer is the second bit. And once again, the fonts have gone haywire here. The unexpected answer. Paul's nephew turns up. So the first thing is Paul's family got involved. Now, we know nothing about Paul's family. Was Paul married or is he not? I think almost certainly on balance he must have been. Because you couldn't be a, a Pharisee at the age he was when he became a Christian without being married. It was something that was expected of you. And when he talks about, in 1 Corinthians 7, about the unmarried like me, he's using a word which he applies to in that chapter to apply to people who've been married, aren't married any longer. And it would seem that uh, he'd had a marriage, but perhaps it had fallen apart. Perhaps the girl had died. Perhaps her family had said, whoa, he's a Christian. We want nothing to do with him. You're coming home. We just don't know what happened. What we do know is that Paul's folly never appeared anywhere else in the whole of the book of Acts. And suddenly, out of the blue, this is his nephew. I don't know if he knew Paul already or not, but he wasn't prepared to see his uncle die in that kind of a way. And so Paul's family links, which had probably been strained over the last few years, were restored as a result of God using this boy out of all the people that could have told him to come and sort out the, the situation. Paul's family got involved. What else happened in this particular answer? Lysias, Claudius Lysias, got angry. He was the commander, and he was so annoyed about uh, what had happened uh, in the, the, the plot and the Sanhedrin and so on that he really got steamed up and said, right, we're going to send Paul with absolute security, total safety, all the way up to Caesarea, and that will sort him out. Why was Lysias, why did he feel so strongly? Well, I reckon he probably felt quite slighted by the Jewish leaders in all sorts of ways. His name, Claudius Lysias, suggests he wasn't a proper Roman. He was a Greek. You got lots of Greeks involved in the Roman administration in the east of the empire, and so he wasn't unusual. But before the fact that he didn't come from Rome probably put him down the social scale a little bit. And we know, as we said last week, that Ananias, the high priest who commanded Paul to be struck on the mouth, if you remember that bit, Ananias had lots of friends in Rome. Because just four or five years before this, he'd been sent to Rome on trial himself because Herod the Gripper had had enough of him and uh, arrested him for wanton murder and for, for ripping people off. He was sent to, to Rome where his, his good friends made sure that uh, the emperor Claudius said, no, 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 he's, he's obviously innocent, he can go home again. And so he had powerful friends in Rome, although he was Jewish. 
And Claudius Lysias, well, he was just a Greek. And I think Lysias was so annoyed at what had happened here and the way the Jews had tried to hoodwink him and commit a murder right under his nose that he was right, okay, and it put him more on Paul's side than would otherwise have happened. That, I think, is why he wrote that really nice letter to Felix, saying, listen, it's some argument about their laws or their beliefs or something like that, but it's got nothing to do with justice. This guy has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. Oh, by the way, you better try him first, but he's innocent. And uh, so I think Lysias gave me such a strong case for Paul simply because he was annoyed by the whole situation. What was the third thing that happened? The family got involved, Lysias got angry, and, and third, the Jewish plotters were seen for what they were. Suddenly he realized, as, 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 as he uh, dealt with Ananias and his henchmen, you cannot trust these guys. He didn't think they were very trustworthy anyway, but now he began to realize just what depths they were to sink to. Uh, hooking up with the, the men in order to get rid of somebody that they just didn't like. And as far as Lysias was concerned, that showed you what you were dealing with. So it meant that when uh, Ananias and his friends come to uh, Caesarea to have another go at Paul, they don't succeed at all. <laughs> and you'll see that as we move on in the book of Acts in, in subsequent weeks. They don't have a chance. So God had done quite a lot of things through the way that he sent this answer, hasn't he? And God does tend to do that. He tends to make things happen in big ways. This is what actually happened in, in terms of the map. Jerusalem is at the bottom of the map there, where the red line starts. The red line shows you the way they went up that first night to Antipatris. Now, and that explains why all of those soldiers on horse were involved and why they turned back when they got to Antipatris and Paul went on with the remaining soldiers to Caesarea. It's because that first part of the route goes right through the hill country. Now, I've driven up that road. It's a dual carriageway in these days. And uh, although um, you, can, you can see that it's a nice, clear road nowadays. Well, it isn't first thing in the morning. But uh, it's, it's, it's usually a nice, clear road, unlike the road from Torquay to Exeter. But um, uh, you can see the hills crowding over you as well, with little passes and secret valleys and things like that. And it would be very, very easy for Paul, if he was sent with two or three soldiers, to be overpowered by the plotters and killed. And so Lysias goes, goes to the, the, the ultimate extreme and sends all of these soldiers up with him. There were probably a thousand soldiers stationed in Jerusalem at that time. 470 of them made that trip up to Antipatris. When you get to Antipatris, it's, a, it's quite a short hop on from there, another 30 miles, onto Caesarea. It's on the open plain country. It's Gentile country anyway, lots of non-Jews around. So it's very unlikely that the plotters could do anything there. Once they got to Antipatris, they were pretty safe. And so that's the way that Paul was sent. And uh, God just made sure that Paul was in absolutely safe hands. And he did that by the way it all happened. And it reminds me of three things, I think, about God's answers to our problems. First of all, God's answers usually don't come in the way that we would naturally expect. Usually, we are facing a problem and thinking, why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do this? It's the obvious thing to do. And then God does that. We think, oh, oh, that solved a problem but actually in a much better way. And God's answers sometimes come that way, don't they? Not in the way that we would expect, but nonetheless in a thoroughly effective way. Paul never expected, if you'd said to Paul the day before, you are going up to Caesarea and you'll have 470 soldiers for an escort. He'd say, Go on, pull the other one, that's not going to happen. But God did it, didn't he? And God does that kind of thing. The, the answers don't always come in the way that we would expect. So when you're waiting for God to do something, he's not doing it. 
don't feel that he's limited to that. He can be doing something quite different that you're only going to see the result of a little bit later on. Second thing about God's answers, and this thing is really giving up on me this morning. Yep, that's it. They, they, they arrive right on time. They come when we need them, but not necessarily a long time in advance. <laughs> Sometimes it's only at the very last minute that you get God supplying what you actually need. And uh, sometimes he puts you through a situation where you think, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm really, I'm really uh, panicking about this. And then suddenly God sends the answer and you realize it was just when I needed it, not before. And God never guarantees it's going to give us peace of mind by doing something weeks in advance. Sometimes he does. And we can look forward to what's going to happen because God's already supplied everything. But sometimes we have to trust right through to the last minute. And only because... Um, we're, we're in his hands. The thing is, God is not a sort of supernatural ATM. He's not a, a, somebody who's a piece of machinery, who gives us the answers as we like them. He's a person. And you know how it is in a relationship with another person. Sometimes they do what you want. Sometimes they don't do what you want. Sometimes they do things quickly. Sometimes they don't do things quickly. And your relationship grows the more you're in that kind of relationship, the more you, you, you start to understand them better when you understand the speeds at which they do things and the ways in which they do things and the things they respond to to the things they don't respond to. Living with God is just like that. Sometimes he'll send it all ahead of time, well ahead of time, because he knows we need that reassurance. Sometimes he'll keep us on our toes right through to the last minute because he knows it was a challenge to our faith. But God's still going to come through for us right on time. And what's the third thing? Oops, that's far, far too far ahead. The third thing is that when God gives you the answer, he often solves more than one problem at once. God was doing something about Paul's family relationships here. He wasn't probably going to see much of his family again, but he, it ended on a good note, didn't it, if this was the, the last time he saw his nephew. Uh, he was going to sort out uh, the situation in Caesarea before Paul actually got there. And he was going to give Paul an exceptional blessing, which we'll see about in just a moment. And God is capable of doing something. You think, wow, that answer, I'd never have seen it coming, but it solves that one, and it solves that one, and it does a bit for that one as well. And when God solves a problem, he does it right. He fixes it in a way that we would never do it ourselves. So um, there's a story told about... Um, uh, a, a cotton mill in Lancashire in the 19th century, not David Livingston's one, that was not Scotland, but another one. And you know how in the 19th century, sometimes the whole population of a village or a town would depend on the factory for work. And uh, often they went down because it was very competitive in the early days of the Industrial Re Revolution. And if your factory closed, that was it. Everybody starved. Well, one day, it's apparently in this factory, news spread that the, the owner had run out of money. He was going to have to close the mill down. There were already people who were just getting by, barely getting by, and uh, they didn't know what they were going to do. And lots of the workers in this, uh, this mill were Christians. So they organized a prayer meeting right there in the workshop. And even those who weren't Christians turned up because they thought, well, you know, let's try this thing, let's see if it works. And as they prayed, the prayers got more and more despondent. God, we don't know what's going to happen. This is going to be desperate. Think of our children, Lord. Think of our starving families. It's not that we've got a lot in this world anyway, and now it seems like you've completely let us down. Then the prayers went silent. They weren't going anywhere anyway. It was just worrying in God's presence. And suddenly a girl started singing at the back. 
And she started singing a verse of a hymn that they all knew because they'd sung it many times before. But they'd never really thought too hard about the words up until that point. And the words were these, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. That's fantastic, isn't it? And you know what? The mill didn't close. Nobody starved. God provided the answer. But that is another story. Let's look at the third thing to finish with, shall we? And the third thing, of course, is the unexpected blessing. This is Caesarea. This is where Paul was taken. You see, Caesarea was where the Roman governor lived most of the time. And he didn't come down to Jerusalem, which was a hotbed of intrigue and violence and Jewish stuff that you just don't understand most of the time. He just lived in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was an artificial city. It had been built about 60 years before by Herod the Great, the guy, same guy that built the temple, the one who uh, tried to have Jesus dealt with when he was an infant. But uh, that's another story too. And Caesarea was a very, very cosmopolitan kind of a city and a marvellous place. This is uh, a picture of it, uh, the shoreline of it as it is today, and that's a plan on the right of how the ancient city was. The whole thing was centred around this bit, the harbour that was built by Herod, the harbour of Sebastos. It was as big as many of the great harbours of the ancient world. It was built on an absolutely straight coastline, and so they had to use whatever features they could and build artificial breakwaters and things like that. But they ended up with a fantastic harbour called Sebastos, and uh, that was the heart of Caesarea. And around it, he built a town which was supposed to honour Caesar, therefore Caesarea. Martima. And uh, uh, overlooking the harbour, he built the biggest temple you could imagine to Augustus Caesar. And uh, I've got a little circle around that. So, yep, now an arrow pointing to it. That's it. So the, the, the temple just overshrouded the whole town and reminded people, this is Rome in Palestine. Okay. And so it was the safest place to take Paul, Paul to because it was the centre of where the Romans were. And it had all the usual facilities. There was a, a, a hippodrome and a, a, a circus. But the, the, the important thing to look at there was uh, what sticks out on that little promontory there. Because that is where Herod built his praetorium, his palace. And it was pretty exceptional. It looked down, or up rather, on the harbour. And it was where two things happened. First of all, in that praetorium, Herod built a wonderful place for himself to live. It was, he had five or six palaces, Herod. This was about the nicest of them. And uh, there it is on this little uh, promontory looking out into the sea. There are only the ruins left nowadays, but this is kind of what it must have looked like uh, when it was first built. Oh, this thing, I charged this thing up this morning as well. There, oh, a bit. sorry, we'll get there. We'll get there by two o'clock in the afternoon, I promise you. Okay. Come on back. Nah, so, yeah, yeah, back please, Kev, thank you. That'll be good. There you are. There's a picture of what the Praetorium looked like. Now, the front part of it, which is on the right-hand side of the picture there, is Herod's private uh, territory, and that was wonderful. A little pool built inside, off the sea, which was actually a, a freshwater swimming bath. And it was, it was surrounded by trees and dining tables, and in the apse at the back there was a fountain playing all over the place, and that was where Herod sat. Wonderful place. And no wonder uh, it became the palace of the Roman governor very, very quickly. And this is where Felix lived, and Festus later on as well, and Paul was taken there. We move on one more. There we go. There's the, the plan of the palace sticking out into the sea. The front part of it was where uh, the Roman governor lived, or uh, Herod when he was there, and the back of it uh, is where Paul was put. 
And so Paul was living in a palace. Okay, he was a prisoner, but it was pretty good in, in terms of prisons as far as they go. He was living right next to the Hippodrome as well. You can probably see the end of the track up there. And there were 24 races a day, apparently, in Paul's day. So uh, um, he was often sort of uh, woken up with the sound of the cheering and stuff like that. No foghorns as far as we can know in the, the Aegean, but, you know, um, uh, cer certainly plenty of chariot stuff going on. It must have been annoying to Paul to sit there thinking, I could be out there. All of these people down in the circus, I can hear the noise from there, up in the hippodrome, and I can't minister to them any longer. But at the same time, he was in safety. It wasn't like Jerusalem at all. And so what was God doing to Paul here? Instead of the dangerous streets of Jerusalem, he now had four things that I think were quite important. One of those things was um, that uh, he had two years of rest. As you probably realize, you're going to hear about it soon anyway, um, the governor, Felix, wasn't very quick on his job, and he kept Paul in prison for a long time without bringing him to trial. And so Paul had two years when Felix, as Felix dragged his feet and then uh, was replaced by Festus, and Festus uh, dillied and dallied while he made up his mind about what to do. Paul had two years of rest. And that was important for him. It was important for his friends as well, because those two years gave Luke the time he needed to go and talk to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was still alive at that time, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's uh, steward, Chusa, and all sorts of other people who gave him some of the material for the Gospel of Luke that doesn't appear anywhere else. And so Luke was able to do his research and put together Luke Acts as a, uh, as a result of having these two years uh, there. But that wasn't all. Paul also had access to his friends. Luke was able to be there with them, other people. And it wasn't like Jerusalem. You didn't get uh, a, a, the threat of being stabbed in the back every time you went down to the newsagent. Uh, he, was, he was safe, and those friends could come in and out and see him. They were probably there right from the start. Do you notice that uh, it said in our reading that they, they needed mounts for Paul to get to Caesarea? They put Paul on a horse. They didn't make him walk. But why mounts? One horse would be enough. Unless some of Paul's friends were actually going with him. And so he had a two-year holiday with his mates around the place. Not too bad, really. And the third thing was, he got respect for top people. He was able to speak to Felix, the Roman governor. He was able to speak to King Agrippa and Berenice. He was able to speak to Festus. All kinds of folks that he would never normally have rubbed shoulders with. And he was able to present the gospel to them, in some cases, again and again. Felix took to coming and visiting Paul in that part of the palace again and again because he was intrigued by Paul's message. Festus wanted to get to know what it was all about. And God had put Paul in a situation where he could affect more people than he ever had done in his life before. Um, important people. And the fourth thing is, if we can get to that point, thank you, is that uh, it was a chance to tell powerful leaders all about Jesus. And all of that happened simply because God had a third surprise in view for Saul. And, and the big thing is, isn't it, that, that when God gives us something, he gives it properly. And with all we go through, a blessing comes that is bigger than we could imagine. There's an old hymn that says, his love has no limit. His grace has no, no boundary. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says it's very hard for people who hang on to their wealth to get into the kingdom of heaven? 
And Peter immediately clears his throat and comes up with uh, something else and says, Peter spoke up, uh, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> and Jesus makes a staggering promise. He says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And he said, you won't miss out. You will get these things in a different way. He's not speaking literally otherwise. Otherwise, we'd all have a hundred wives. Uh, I will not say whether that's a good idea or not. She's not here this morning, so I can't insult her. But um, uh, you know, he, what he's saying is, you, you put anything in to my kingdom. You give up anything for me, you will be repaid richly. God is no man's debtor, and you will get exactly what uh, I can give you. I will share it upon you. Mind you, he also says, with persecutions. <laughs> it's not necessarily going to be an easy life, but nonetheless, it's a blessed life. It's a rich life. And in the age to come, he says, eternal life, the life of the new age. He says, but many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Don't count on God blessing you if you're not really following me. Just because you're prominent, just because you put yourself out in the limelight, that does not mean you get all of these things. It's those who are prepared to go through the persecutions, those who are prepared to take the lower place, those who are prepared to give everything they have, to lose their life so that they can find it, they are the ones who will be abundantly blessed. So that's a challenge to us this morning. Whatever threats we face, are we prepared to realize that God is the answer to them all? We get surprising answers. Do we realize why God is giving them in the way that he does? And we get surprising blessings. We should be encouraged, shouldn't we? Because that means that what we're doing is something that the Father recognizes and responds to and wants to support and strengthen us with. It's not just for the Apostle Paul. It's for all of us. So let's end the service, shall we? Let's just pray together for a moment. And that will be the end of our time together. And as we pray, just think for a second about uh, where you are right now. I may be speaking to people who are facing threats that nobody else knows about. Or people who desperately need answers to a problem which has been going on for so long and there doesn't seem to be any resolution. Folks maybe who are worrying about the fact that God just doesn't seem to hear, the heavens seem to be silent, and nobody seems to be producing the answers. Father, help us realize that in the things that threaten our lives, you're still there. You're sovereign. You're on the throne. And you always respond on time. You're never late. You always respond appropriately. And you always respond in ways that give, bring bigger blessings into our lives than anything we could ever organize for ourselves if we were trying to send our own course through life. So help us, as followers of yours, just to be dependent on you this week, to be prepared to do whatever you want us to do, whatever it costs, so that you can honor that cost and lead us by your way through the problems to the blessings, because we ask it for your namesake.